Welcome everyone to uh, another episodes of uh, episode of Covera Insights where we talk to leading industry experts about how you should manage your personal wealth. Uh, we have uh, two amazing guests today again uh, introducing them Ashish is the MD and CEO of Motilal Uswal Asset Management Company. He brings with him rich and varied experience uh, about 19 years in sales and distribution channel management and product development. He's been instrumental and a flag bearer in the journey of Motilal Uswal AMC from 1000 crores to 40000 crores in the last 6 years uh, he has an engineering degree in polymer science and a masters in management from nmims uh, mumbai welcome ashish thanks. we thanks also have uh, thanks we also have with us alex uh, alex is a journalist and anchor at bloomberg quint uh, over the past 10 years he has reported on a wide array of sectors from banking and real estate to auto and aviation that's a really nice spread um at, at bloomberg quint he is responsible for everything personal finance i recently did a podcast with alex which was actually very well received and i had a lot of fun doing that so welcome alex again uh, on on kavera uh, so today uh, what uh, gentlemen what we are going to be discussing about is you know multi asset portfolio it's something that everyone talks about very few people practice it um, uh, people do get so tied up in that whole greed and fear game uh so it it's easier to talk about than to practice but we all know that asset allocation and having a multi asset portfolio where the assets have lower correlation or lower covariance can lead to a much better investing experience right so ashish starting out from you right what is a multi asset portfolio um what are the advantages why should someone do it and what are some of the things that people should know when they're doing a multi uh, when they're creating a multi asset portfolio See, I think uh, since you mentioned multi-asset portfolios, obviously the underpinning of that particular concept lies in the very basis of asset allocation itself. And you know, sometimes it helps to give parallel examples for people to understand what we are saying. So, in my view, asset allocation is just like you know practicing chemistry, because right. for example, uh, when you mix uh, different uh, chemicals, uh, what you find is that what it finally produces is completely different from what you uh, started with. and you know while each of those chemicals has their individual properties eventually when you combine them together uh, they lose some of their properties but they gain some properties and the end outcome is completely different a much better outcome than what the raw chemical might have actually uh, given you so i think the most important thing about multi asset portfolios is that you are trying to get the best out of the asset classes and you know if you take individual asset classes then they go through very wild peaks and troughs but when you combine them in a multi asset portfolio then the least one should expect is that they will optimize your return but at the same time they will try to curb the uh, downside or curb the uh, volatility so i think it's a must for uh, every investor to not only be acquainted with it but also uh, practice it in right earnest because you know one of the biggest issues with investing is not the arithmetic it's more the behavior and right. uh, you know the peaks and troughs uh, bring out the worst in terms of behavior and to the extent that we cannot always control our behavior the least we should do is to ensure not to expose ourselves to extremities in the first place uh, so i think it's a very important uh, concept and you know kuvera uh, i know for a fact uh, does a great job of it uh, that's a great service for investors to avail of actually thanks thanks ashish uh, in your opinion though how many investors actually follow asset allocation and rebalancing Uh, this is just purely your opinion i mean if you have data great but uh, you know you talk to a lot more investors yeah. 
And yeah, what I've seen, uh, what I've seen, Gaurav, unfortunately, is that the phase that we are living through right now, you know, where fixed income has disappointed to some extent, you know, you know the woes of the credit markets, etc., and you know that equity clearly, uh, after the events of February and March specifically, equity has also, in some sense, uh, left this feeling of being a letdown, you know, because last five-year return, etc., is not looking great. So what happens is that bure samay mein sabko bhagwan yaad aata hai. So when the things are bad, when every asset class disappoints, that's when people come back to their basics. Like even in cricket, it is said that when you're out of form, go back to basics. So these are unfortunately the times when people really go back to basics and they're willing to listen to what we are actually speaking about right now, which is that, oh yeah, actually I should have had a balanced portfolio and you know, I should have had some gold in my portfolio and I should have definitely had some US equity and stuff. But uh, I think straight on your question, I don't think enough people are practicing it. In fact, mostly uh, people are buying assets based on their past performances. And, uh, you know, when the going gets bad, then they realize the value of having a multi-asset portfolio or a well-balanced uh, portfolio. But my fear is that, you know, you can, you can educate everyone. We all can uh, revisit the concepts. But my fear is that a year later, let's say if Indian equity is booming and some other asset classes are not, then everybody will forget all of that and start wondering why the hell am I holding some of these other assets which actually did nothing. And I should have actually put everything into equity. So people right. swing in uh, their beliefs. No, 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 fair enough. And I think, Alex, that also comes down to the point of, you know, investor behavior is very, very critical to investment success, right? So I think yeah. there, uh, if, if I'm not wrong, there are studies that show that a big part of um, a multi-asset portfolio, a big part of the, uh, of the performance comes from rebalancing as much as, you know, 80% uh, of the alpha that you are expecting will come from rebalancing. And just to quickly explain what rebalancing is that um, uh, say you have a portfolio which is 50% equity and 50% uh, debt. Um, the equity market rallies and suddenly your portfolio is now 70% equity and 30% debt. Mm -hmm. All that rebalancing says is go back to your original 50-50 split. So you will be always in a rebalancing. You will be selling the asset class that has done well in the recent past and buying the asset class that has done worse in the recent past to go back to your asset. And this, this is where the point that Ashish raises, and Alex would be good to know your opinion about, is that rebalancing essentially tells you to sell the asset class that has done well in the recent past, while the bias is always to buy. How do you think most investors you know, uh, 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 think about this construct? So from the interactions, Gaurav, that I've had, and in fact, we've spoken about this uh, with Ashish as well, um, when I think we did a conversation on uh, BQ Port, on Big U Big Decisions, which is a podcast on index funds, and uh, the the tendency that most behave most uh, investors have is to rush after the uh, the asset or the product that gives you the best returns, and that's based over the last one year or so. Uh, so, if we're talking about recency bias, that's essentially what most people tend to do, uh, and which is why. As both of you have already uh, pointed out, very few people actually have a very well-balanced portfolio. Uh, I think that's something that uh, Bloomberg Quint strives to communicate on a regular basis. I think if you listen to Neeraj when he talks about even equity portfolios with the guests that he has on board, uh, he talks about the recent performance of Reliance Industries and the fact that it has dragged the Nifty. And if you were holding maybe one or two of those stocks, you may not have gotten the entire uh, sort of return that you would have gotten if you were holding the Nifty, uh, which is why if you have a well-balanced portfolio, you might actually end up having a much better return than you would if uh, you were holding a single asset or a single product. 
Fair enough, fair enough. And I think uh, uh, I, I would agree, uh, you know, with Neeraj and with you there. Um, it, it's just that um, it's almost like every investor is being pulled apart. Recency bias is telling him, hey, buy. For example, today uh, we are seeing the highest interest in gold, right? And um, uh, and the lowest interest in real estate, right? And if you think about that, if you go back to say 2010, 2011, there was a mad rush to buy real estate and no one wanted to buy gold. Yeah. Well, if you look at the 10, 10 year, then the forward 10 year relative performance is dramatically different and vastly in favor of gold. Gold also, because of just what it did in the last two, three years, I mean, 2012 to 2018, gold was pretty much flat, did nothing, right? Yeah. So, uh, it's a, so it's a, for, from an Indian investor's context, right? If there's a new investor stepping out. Um, what are the different asset classes they should be thinking at, right? I mean, we, uh, we can we can also do a bit more a deep dive into you know, what, what do you guys think about real estate? What do you guys think about gold? Some of the other questions that we get are Bitcoin and P2P lending. So uh, maybe we start with, uh, with, with, with real estate, Ashish. Yeah, I think that, uh, see, uh, one is this uh, element like, uh, you know, what typically is called counter cyclicality. So right. you're right in pointing out that, you know, 2010 and 11, it was a mad rush. Like everybody had a house and a second house and uh, a weekend house and so many things. Uh, whereas uh, in the recent times, it seems to be like a consensus uh, that it only makes sense to, uh, you know, rent. Uh, whereas in reality, uh, it's unbelievable that people think that the economy will come out of doldrums, but real estate will actually uh, go nowhere. You know, right. this kind of very, very exaggerated uh, thought process, or I can say uh, unrealistic thought process, it cannot happen, right? Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, I know that, you know, the intent behind your question is not to ask for a view, but I'm just like painting a scenario out here. Uh, you look at it this way, we are going through this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, banks are flush with liquidity. Interest rates are, I mean, you know, even before COVID-19, SBI's home loan rate was 7.3 or 7.4. So imagine a scenario when we come out of this crisis, uh, you know, industrial borrowers, they follow a cycle. So banks can't push an industrialist to borrow really. Uh, but uh, if but banks have to lend. I mean, you know, you've been in a lockdown for three to four months where credit offtake, offtake is practically going nowhere. You're pumped with liquidity. Interest rates are zero. I mean, sorry, interest rates are very low. The RBI is literally penalizing you for holding liquidity. Yeah. So just imagine what will happen when you get on the other side of the tunnel, tunnel let us say asset prices are 30-40% down and your home loan rate is say 7%. Eventually, a uh, lot of people will start thinking. I mean, in 2003, I distinctly remember home loan rate for MNC banks was 7%. Right. Uh, in 2008 or 9 sometime, it was again well below 8%. So what happens is whenever in Hindi, what we call a mandi, whenever you go through a mandi, it always ends with very, very low interest rates, very high liquidity asset prices have deflated and then you know something which you used to think is outlandish might actually ha end up uh, happening so this was just the painting the scenario kind of thing look i'm not trying to give views but i'm just telling you i've seen this happening uh, two times in the past and i won't be surprised if it happens third time at the end of economic cycle uh, but on your important point uh, yeah i mean it has to be uh, uh, even it has to be part of your asset allocation i don't think anybody one thing I've learned about investing is that there are no conclusions. There are no foregone conclusions. There'll be leaders and laggards, but there are no perpetual winners and losers. So uh, I have a small point here when we're talking about real estate, uh, because I think what the tendency is when you talk about the sector, having also looked at and covered the sector in the past, is that uh, the tendency is to look at 
a pocket of real estate maybe you talk about delhi ncr and you talk about mumbai and you try to extrapolate that to the rest of the country which is not the case so right. if you're talking about affordability of housing and you talk about mumbai and you talk about certain pockets of mumbai so if you talk about mumbai itself you have south bombay which is a very different picture from the suburbs you talk about borivli or you talk about andheri which is a very different concept right so if somebody might still be able to afford a property in borivli uh, so and the type of borrower and type of buyer of that real estate would also be very different so in my opinion if you're looking at real estate you would also need to look at the end use of real estate if you're looking at it in terms of an investment and you're looking to turn that over in maybe 15 to 20 years perhaps i think at this moment depending on where you want to buy it uh you need to seriously have that conversation about where you expect prices to go because definitely over the last 5 years you've had a situation where prices have actually gone nowhere in certain markets of course in markets like palgad in markets like pune in markets like bangalore you still seen an increase in the prices but in in markets like bombay in markets like certain markets like delhi you haven't seen a sharp increase in prices of real estate so therefore as an investment class perhaps it's not done as well as certain other classes see i mean that that's a that's a very fair point but i mean i'll, I'll just like to say two things here right i mean uh, asset uh, asset allocation and, and to some to a certain extent a multi asset uh, portfolio uh, the whole idea is that you don't you don't Look spend too much time on returns yes. and also fixing yes. whether will go having Fair said enough. that one point that you brought out which uh, which is true for real estate investing and i also believe that is it's a very hard asset class to diversify Yes. most people will be able to buy one house maximum two house in their lifetime so the ticket size because of the ticket size exactly because the ticket size is so big so um in in effect you are to take very very concentrated bets and like you rightly said location 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 always matters so if you if you get the right location your returns will look dramatically different than if you don't um having said that i think uh, technology can play a big part here i think there will be uh, a whole slew of you know uh, partial ownership in real estate which yeah. will make it easier for you to kind of diversify your real estate holdings and uh, yeah. so, so coming coming back to some of the other asset classes right do you think gold bitcoin uh, and p2p lending has any place in a, in an investor's portfolio in india or are there any other asset classes you think that the indian investor should think of outside of just equity and debt uh is that question to me sure alex yeah. Yeah, please go on please go on uh so i think uh, p2p lending yeah, you mentioned p2p lending it's huge in china uh, yeah. it's, it's something that uh, the rbi i think is looking at it on on a consistent basis very recently the limit was increased if i'm not mistaken uh and you can lend more uh, on a p2p lending platform than you could earlier uh, however i don't think a lot of people and this is purely from the theoretical standpoint i don't think people really understand the risk that they're entering uh because uh if you just look at the concept it's people lending to people and people only lend to people when the people who are borrowing are not able to borrow from banks and other financial institutions and they're not allow, uh, able to borrow from banks and financial institutions because their credit worthiness is not uh, at a certain level so if you're expecting higher returns you need to understand that the risk involved in lending to those individuals is significantly higher then certain other asset classes so if you have the expectation that the risk is perhaps as high or maybe higher than equity then then you're going into it with your eyes open but if you're not then perhaps you're not 
So, so as an asset class, it makes sense, but you have to size it correctly and yeah. be very cognizant of what's called adverse selection, which is basically uh, the most credit hungry people will come to that. It's an unsecured line of credit with very little uh, checks and balances. So that's fair enough. Um, any takers for Bitcoin? Uh, do you want to pass well, that? I'm frankly not very knowledgeable on that. Maybe, you know, if, if you have a view, maybe you can educate us, yeah. bit, honestly speaking. We don't have to, but I mean, uh, I see uh, we have had this uh, conversation recently about Bitcoin, right? And I think there is a debate going on right now whether Bitcoin is an asset class or whether it's a currency. Mm. The more and more it gets regulated and the more it gets regulated uh, uh, by different central banks uh, as an asset class rather than as a currency of exchange, the more the, this, uh, this question will come up again and again is that should we invest in Bitcoin as a counter cyclical asset class? And to a certain extent, Bitcoin is showing some of the same lower correlations, uh, some of the same kind of, you know, uh, uh, as a hedge against currency, as a hedge against uh, bad economic times that traditionally gold held. But now in a digital format, which can uh, hopefully be transported and monetized uh, more easily. Yeah, to I, the extent of what I, is happening with US and to the extent of what can happen, uh, doomsday theories about US dollar, then definitely I can relate to what you're saying, actually. Uh, small point here. We're talking about Bitcoin, but like we used to do in terms of Xerox, we're really talking about cryptocurrencies right. as a whole. And there are several now, obviously, that we're, we're talking about investing in uh, alternatives to Bitcoin. As we all know, Facebook is looking at launching Libra. Uh, which it, it's, itself is going through a whole uh, regulatory rigmarole in the US because they're very cautious about allowing a large company to launch its own uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, I think the RBI's view is very conservative when uh, it comes to uh, Bitcoin. And there, there was a bit of a regulatory ruckus here in India as well. Uh, it went to the courts and all of that. Uh, it was banned for banks to really uh, allow or facilitate the buying of Bitcoin. So I think in India, perhaps we have to wait for the dust to settle and for the regulatory air to be cleared uh, somewhat for us to, in my opinion, have a very clear uh, conversation about the merits of holding it as an asset uh, rather than something that you simply use to transact. Uh, of course, the valuing of that is something that uh, you can have a you know conversation about separately. Uh, so, in my opinion, I don't think you should consider cryptocurrency a major asset class at the moment in India. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, I think uh, the the uh, if I had to summarize really really quickly, real estate, gold definitely makes sense. P2P lending, just make sure that you understand what the risks are. Uh, Bitcoin may be a bit too early to call. So, so coming back to, you know, debt and equity, coming back to kind of, you know, the, 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 the biggest piece of your asset allocation should be debt and equity. Um, so this, the second part of it is, so say someone is convinced that, hey, you know, I want to do asset allocation. Within the, uh, within the equity class and within the debt and also equity and debt, then how sh what should drive an investor's asset allocation decision right i mean so ashish how should an investor think about how much equity should i own how much debt should i own there are rules of thumbs there what would be your advice see two approaches to it uh, one uh, clearly is you know this whole goal planning you know in terms of what are you investing for like for example why are you investing if you don't know then how can you know where you will invest and what, you know, because a lot of times I've seen is that the starting point itself is wrong because the starting point is, you know, typically when people ask their friend or someone, or they read somewhere, 
that this looks like a good fund or this looks like a good uh, thing to buy. So I think one needs to really step back and first think that why am I investing? Uh, and you know, what to what end, actually not even why, to what end is the right question, that to what end am I actually investing? And what are my expectations from this investment? And what should it do for me? Because then that will determine, you know, what kind of return you require and you know, what time horizon you have, et cetera. And then that will be mapped to the appropriate asset class. You know, funds and stuff comes much, much later. Once you've decided all of this, then, you know, the fund is just a way of actualizing uh, what you have actually already uh, decided. Uh, so that is one thing, you know, that what to what end you're investing. Second thing is that, you know, uh, how much of, uh, you know, when you're investing, how much of volatility can you actually tolerate? Because irrespective of your goals and expectations, what I've seen is that when people set out to achieve certain goals along the way, if the path is rickety, uh, they just can't digest. You know, they just can't digest 100 rupees becoming 80, 85, 90 along the way. So then, you know, irrespective of what goal you set out to achieve, if you can't tolerate 100 becoming 90, then that's a very different discussion altogether. You know, then maybe you need to recalibrate or come to real terms with, you know, what is achievable. It's not just money. It's also your psychology that, you know, okay, you know, while I would love to achieve one, two, three, four, five things, but along the path, what all comes with that journey, I just can't uh, handle it. So then, you know, I think, uh, so long story short, I think what you are investing for, what return uh, you expect to get for that and how much risk you are able to tolerate. I think these are three elementary things. Setting the expectations, right? Sorry, Gaurav, it just struck me right now because Ashish and I were sitting on stage at an event that Bloomberg Quinn did. And uh, I encouraged people to think about the goals that they wanted to achieve, financial goals. And there was the first answer that we got, in fact, was, I want to generate alpha in my portfolio. And Ashish, I, I saw the expression on his face and he was a little uh, stunned, but also he had, I think, expected that because a lot of people say, you know, wealth creation and I want to generate alpha. And, and those are the kinds of goals that they set for themselves, but don't, they're not really financial goals. See, right? That was actually, frankly, Alex, that's more a comment on how we guys conduct ourselves, you know, because look, what they told me is that there's a guy out there who's seemingly very knowledgeable, but doesn't know the application of the concept. Yeah. So if that's why I told him that, you know, look, even if you achieve alpha, you may not end up achieving your objectives. So please focus on your objectives rather than on what I will do with my uh, mutual fund management and what alpha we will or will not uh, generate. Yeah. So I think that's more a sign of how we are communicating, frankly speaking. <laughs> How do, you, how do you approach uh, uh, having a diversified uh, portfolio and still do your goal-based planning? Right. So, see, every goal, uh, think of every goal um, in isolation and then think of every goal as a part of your future cash flow needs in your life journey, right? Um, simply put, say three years down the line, you want to buy a car, 10 years down the line, you want to buy a house, then, you know, I'm just talking about the big expenses, then kids' education, then kids' marriage, then your retirement. Let's say like these five are the are, are the big ticket items that you have to think of, right? Um, and you can throw in a few foreign vacations in the in, in the mix if you so want to. Now, uh, once you have that panned out, right, you can think of every goal and say, okay, this goal is just two years away. So for example, let, let's start with two goals because that will make it very, very simple. This goal is two years away, so I should be 90% in debt and 10% in equity. I also have a retirement goal for which I will be 70% in equity or 80% in equity and 20% in debt. So my real asset allocation will be a blend of the two. Yeah. 
and it will be weighted by what's the size of my two year goal and what's the size of my retirement goal mm. so mathematically there is a there's also a, a a concept called the unified goal uh, planning so unified goal planning essentially does this essentially what unified goal planning does is it takes in your it looks at your cash flow as a continuum rather than looking at your at your goals in isolation mm. because the one thing that we have also noticed is that goals change right a goal you have today um, is, is, is it's also an aspirational thing. There are some goals that will never change. Retirement is a goal that hopefully the only thing that changes is that you have to prepone it or that yeah. you are able to prepone it. But uh, hopefully other than that, you know, I think you, you want to be able to maintain the, the lifestyle you want to maintain when you retire. So um, unified goal planning helps you achieve that. As your goals change, the mix of uh, say equity debt that you need to hold for each goal will change and that will change your blended equity debt in your overall portfolio but you still have a very well diversified portfolio see in fact if you think about uh, if you think about mutual funds and etf investing there's also a concept called the two fund separation theorem effectively what it means is that to reach any objective right so say you have a five year goal or a 10 year goal to reach any objective investors only need an ideal equity portfolio and an ideal debt portfolio Hmm. then the portion of the equity portfolio or the debt portfolio that every individual investor holds depends on their risk appetite their goal duration and that's it hmm. but the portfolio itself doesn't change right if you have a higher risk appetite than me we are both uh, the same age and we both have five year goals you will just own 80% of the equity portfolio and 20% of the debt portfolio and i will own 60% of the same equity portfolio and 40% of the debt portfolio. So asset allocation itself can be a very powerful tool for risk management as well. Yeah. Right. So um, a lot of these problems, I think like Ashish had mentioned earlier, right? A lot of these problems are solved and you know, the theory is very good, even in application. It, it's just that they are much harder to apply, right? A lot of people are chasing gold today and are, you know, they're sad that they didn't buy more gold. It's, it's because gold has been doing very well. Uh, in an alternate universe, 2020 was another boom year for equity and gold would not have gone anywhere. Then people would have wondered, why do I, why am I still owning gold or why do I still have gold in my portfolio? And I think that the psychology is, is, is the, is the bigger problem. Like, you know, coming back to just this last thing, coming back to the point you made, uh, about, uh, people focusing too much on returns, right? Um, a return based story that has been mostly sold to investors right you know what do investors hear hey, this investor made 30% returns this investor makes 20% returns this investor makes 20 the the context in your mind is always returns a, a, a return based context will always lead you to think of your goal being alpha generation if you are a sophisticated investor or achieving very high returns if you don't know what the word alpha means but effectively you are both saying the same thing yeah effectively Actually, uh... I was sorry to interrupt you. Sorry, I was just picking. You know, I just realized something. I was in a conference and there one of the speakers said this very interesting thing. He said that mentally, right from childhood, we are not wired to accept an average number. You know, see, because when you, for example, amidst all the fabulous uh, claims of success and the great equity mutual funds that managed and the star managers that are out there. If you tell someone that just by the market, just by the index hmm. and then say, why? Because, you know, some will have alpha, some will not have alpha. So might as well settle for the average. That's the indirect communication, right? People don't like that. They want to be at the, they want to ride the wave and they want to be at the crest of every 
wave that will uh, come forth and the same way i think it applies to this whole asset allocation logic also because if you tell someone that you know look at the right time you cannot have 100% gold and then at the right time you will not have 100% equity it's not possible so why don't you settle for the average now this implicit communication that you know i would prefer that you settle for the average i think people don't find it palatable that you know come on man there has to be a way to ride the wave i mean how can i settle for the average right market timing argument at just at the right time you switch to 100% gold <laughs> yeah like our chairman also says there is no just in time investing <laughs> it doesn't happen you have to allocate and you have to wait and you have to figure you have to imagine that your hypothesis will play out there is nothing called just in time ashish talk about the recent run up right if you're talking about uh, when uh, the sensex rebounded uh from sub 30000 to 32000 and people got jittery saying how is this justified and uh, you know on what basis is the is the market running up and they actually pulled money out of equity and they put it into debt saying boss i i will enter again when the market goes down below 30000 again and now we're talking about uh, sensex at 35000 plus so so you can't possibly time the market right actually there is this realization is missing that when you try to get the when you try to ride every wave and when you try to catch the extreme on the upside the realization is missing that you are quite likely to catch the extreme on the downside uh, trust Fair me enough. i actually encountered you know around 23rd or 27th or end of march sometime uh, i was in office and i spoke to an investor who had withdrawn every single rupee from his indian equity portfolio wow and then he was telling me that i am waiting to time i will invest in us and to the best of my information wow. to the best of my information he has neither so he redeemed equity in the end of march and to the extent that i am updated right now i am reasonably certain i don't think he ended up investing outside either wow. so he got the so in in the attempt to catch the extremes look what has happened he caught the bottom here and he never caught the bottom elsewhere so now the money is in cash and both sides are completely missed out yeah and now there now there is the pain of reinvestment because reinvestment uh, reinvestment now is a is is a painful process because it's almost foregone gains uh, yeah. that hey i missed out on a 28% rally will be looked upon almost equivalent to a 20% loss so it becomes very hard to pull the trigger and then you always keep thinking no 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 the same level will come yeah. again the same level will come again and i'll enter the market and i yeah. uh, yeah. um, so you see it, it, the, the there's just so many behavioral biases right i think i think yeah. return return is definitely one of them every individual also has that overconfidence that if no one else has done it doesn't matter i will be able to yeah but and then the, kid, the other aspect uh, the other aspect gorav is i think uh, that people tend to put too much stock in certain individuals so for example i remember very clearly that everybody was waiting for warren buffett Uh, at the uh, at his annual general meeting to comment on where he sees the market going and i remember the stories that emerged from that is that warren buffett to sit on cash okay and and a lot of people interpreted that as saying oh wow okay the the most the well most well known investor of our times is going to sit on cash and is not going to invest when the market is Uh, been trounced so much does he anticipate that the market is going down further so you tend to put a lot of stock in what your so called geniuses uh, and they might be very good at what they do but i don't think that you can extrapolate that into your own life right 
part of it is extrapolation part of it is also that um, investing is not a science it's a probabilistic outcome yeah. warren buffett just has to be right 55 to 60% of the time to have fantastic it doesn't have to be right every single time yeah right so um, what will happen and what does happen is that people based on their biases will also which is also called confirmation bias if you are looking for a reason to stay in cash you will find the right warren buffett quote that says stay in cash <laughs> if you are looking for a reason to invest you will find the right some other investors quote who says go all 100% equity right yeah. so yeah I, I think a lot of these um, uh, big investor quotes are just used to confirm your own beliefs and to kind of justify them to yourself Right. because then what happens and why do we do that there is a psychological reason also to do that um if it was just my call to be stay in cash and the call comes out wrong i will be blaming myself yeah yeah if i For say sure. hey warren buffett said stay in cash yaar he got it wrong what's the big deal if i also got it wrong <laughs> i'm perfectly happy with my life now so i mean we play games with ourselves and i think as investors i think the biggest part of maturity of an investor is to realize the games we play with ourselves and to stop playing those games and say that you know the simplistic model this much in equity this much in debt this much in gold this much in real estate bitcoin p2p lending whatever asset classes you like and just rebalancing over time is a simplistic game which will give you really really good returns without any of the heartache without any of the storytelling without any of this post fact justifications uh, that any other model of investing would require you to do. and i think to ashish's point the average is not so bad and i i was very happy with distinction you <laughs> know investing is the only is the only uh, i think place where actually averages uh, outperforming the average is extremely hard yeah because all the frictions are stacked up against you so um uh, anyways i i think uh, the, the the takeaways are clear um there are certain biases that we have as an investors which prevent us from following um asset allocation the biggest one being that um we are trained to chase returns in the past one year while asset allocation would require us to actually sell those assets and buy the underperforming assets there is merit in doing that some of the, the the biggest part of your gains over an average portfolio over an uh, not to say average just to recap the biggest part of your gains about 85% of of the gains in your portfolio the alpha will come from rebalancing and asset allocation so do look at these things carefully do realize that uh, as humans as investors we tend to tell stories to ourselves and to believe those stories they may not always be right um, asset allocation is a proven method uh so uh, uh, once again thanks ashish uh, thanks alex uh, for being on the show uh, it was a fantastic conversation thank you, conversation. Thank you.